doing, man? This is Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series. Welcome to the party, pal! Hosted by Arnie. It's always more of a Star Wars guy. Stuart. He didn't bring me along for my charming personality. And Jacob. Flying in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. Pain in the ass. It's a good day to die hard. So each week, we will be watching and reviewing a new die hard film, ending with a weekend of release review of the new movie. Another basement, another elevator. Look at the same shit happen to the same guy twice. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Today we're discussing Die Hard with a Vengeance. Starring Bruce Willis, Jeremy Irons, Samuel L. Motherfucking Jackson. And directed by John McTiernan. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, who's one step away from being an alcoholic. And another Rennie Harlan film might be that step. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, podcasting with a vengeance. And it was five years since John McClane last hit the screens. Five long years, they got the original director back, and somewhere they ditched Bonnie Bedelia. It had been five years between Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 3, but it wasn't like this formula had gone without. It should be worth pointing out that this was the time period where the ripoffs came. This is when we got Speed. This is when we got Under Siege. This is when we got Cliffhanger. Everybody was making a movie, got pitched as Die Hard on a blank. I mean, it was what was happening. So it almost seemed redundant to make another Die Hard movie in 1995. And I mentioned last time, I didn't see this one. By this point, it did feel redundant to me. I had moved on to other things. Summer of 1990, Die Hard 2 was my favorite film. Summer of 1991, I discovered art movies and foreign films, and I just was watching other things. By 1995, it's well documented at this point. I was in film school. I had no use for big-budget Hollywood sequels. And I was there opening weekend. (laughs) As was I. I mean, this came out the weekend of my 18th birthday, and this is what I wanted to do. See Die Hard. Surprisingly, at this point, I had become a bit of a film critic. I was actually taking classes in film criticism in college and writing reviews, but my tastes had started to branch out quite a bit. I discovered, of course, with the rest of the world, Quentin Tarantino, and started to get more into the indie films type of thing that was going on around that time, but I still had a thing for big-budget blockbusters. I have to say, though, Die Hard felt a little played out to me by this point. Years pass a lot slower in your first 25 years than in your second, I think. Because five years to me, between 1990 and 1995, you go from me in the middle of high school to me almost graduating from college. And that seems like a hell of a long time. They're coming out with Die Hard. I'm like, oh, really? They still remember that? And then you go from Spider-Man 3 to Amazing Spider-Man. I'm like, they're rebooting it already? But to me at this point, John McClane was something from my high school years, something I'd left behind. Bruce Willis at this point had become a major star, but I think he'd already suffered the blows of defeat by that point. He had taken some hits, Bonfire of the Vanities perhaps being the most notable, Hudson Hawk being the one I saw. There you go. That's the real bomb. Nobody blames him for Bonfire of the Vanities. That was bad casting. Hudson Hawk was him saying, I know how to tell jokes, 
and rewriting what was allegedly a great script, yes, his ego created that piece. And he wasn't the only one. John McTiernan didn't come back for Die Hard 2 because, well, he was too good for it. He was doing Hunt for Red October. But John McTiernan in 1995 is coming off Last Action Hero, an incredibly big Arnold bomb, the bomb he made after Terminator 2. So yes, they got to prove that they've still got it. They've got to do a Die Hard 3 together to go back and to make those personal projects again. That said, to me at this point, Bruce Willis had gotten acting cred from Pulp Fiction the year before, which he co-starred in with Samuel L. Jackson. Stuart, you talk about how you were getting in indie films and Arnie, you as well. It's that indie film, Pulp Fiction, that really came kind of out of nowhere, at least for the mainstream America, where I really took notice of Samuel L. Jackson, and I was probably just excited to see him in a diehard film as Bruce Willis. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I didn't know who Sam Jackson was until Pulp Fiction. Now I go back and watch films like Coming to America. I'm like, oh my God, it's Samuel L. motherfucking Jackson. Yeah, Jurassic Park. Perfect example. And now Pulp Fiction pushed him into the spotlight for me. And so I was very excited to see him here with Bruce Willis, kind of a reteaming, even though I don't think they shared much screen time. They kind of just stared each other down. Yeah. Yeah, and it almost didn't come to pass. He was sitting on two scripts, and he decided he didn't want to get all wet for a shooting, so he didn't do Waterworld. But he was that close to hanging out with Fish and Kevin Costner. It was only happenstance. It wasn't a brilliant pairing of let's get the Pulp Fiction guys back to do the movie. It just kind of happened that way. But it's the thing I know about this movie. The only thing I know about Die Hard 3 is that it had Sam Jackson in it, and that instead of a building or an airport... It was going to be New York City and what I thought was the subway system. I thought it was going to happen all entirely within, you know, the train. So that was what I was prepared for. Essentially a remake of taking a Bellham 123. I didn't see how you could do Die Hard in Manhattan. To me, the whole thing about Die Hard is sequestering a hero away where they are trapped in a situation. Steven Seagal on a boat. Keanu Reeves on a bus. John McClane in a skyscraper or John McClane in an airport. Now, if you listened to our review last week, my modern eye sees that as less sequestered than it is. Yes. But that was my whole thing is if you have him in a city, how can you have it be a diehard film? And to me, I think coming in now with my current perspective, that's actually the deviation that makes this film right. Jacob asked last week, well, what makes a diehard film? What makes a diehard film is putting John McClane in a situation where he's up against a nefarious villain who's going to blow things up. But it is not the sequestering, and that gives this movie a freshness that I think Die Hard 2 lacked. And there's not going to be a Books and Nachos for this film. Stuart, you didn't have to read anything because this was based off an original script, but not an original Die Hard script. The writer did a script called Simon Says, where... A terrorist plays all these little games with a cop, and when they're looking to do a Die Hard sequel, well, they got their hands on this script, and they said, oh, we could shove John McClane in this, and about the first half of the script is not changed much, except for some names, you gotta throw John McClane in there, and then it changes as the plot evolves, but yeah, they just took some script out there and turned it into a Die Hard film. The funniest thing is, they were working on several drafts of Die Hard 
before that script. And a lot of the stuff that McTiernan had come up with, he then discarded to his old cameraman, and they became the movie Speed. Well, Arnie, I guess that's your cue then. Want to tell him how the same guy could have the same thing happen to him three times? Well, depending on your point of view, I don't think the same thing does happen to the same guy three times. But what happens in Die Hard 3... In the time since Die Hard 2, John McClane has gotten back on the NYPD, separated from Holly, to whom he hasn't spoken in a year. His life is in shambles, he's drinking heavily and suspended from the force, well on the way to being fired. But when a bomb goes off in Manhattan and a terrorist calling himself Simon demands McClane play a dangerous game of Simon Says, or more bombs go off, McClane is brought back on the force. His first task? Wearing a sandwich sign with a racial epitaph in Harlem, which brings him in conflict with Zeus. No, not the Greek god, but a Harlem electrician who gets involved to prevent McLean from being killed. Simon is upset that a so-called Good Samaritan helps McLean and demands Zeus accompany McLean on the tasks. But Simon's real name is Simon Gruber, brother of Hans Gruber from the first film. He's ostensibly wanting revenge for his brother's death, but the true plan is to rob billions of dollars of gold from the Federal Reserve Bank on Wall Street. A subway bomb detonated under the guise of punishment for McLean disables the bank's alarms and gives Simon's team access from the subway. To get the cops out of the Wall Street area, Simon then claims there's a bomb at a school that will go off at 3 o'clock. With all the police in Manhattan looking for bombs and McLean on a number of fool's errands with Zeus, Simon and his men succeed in stealing the gold. But Simon has yet another double cross. He partnered with Matthias Targo, who thinks the plan is to blow up the gold as a political statement. But Simon kills Targo and replaces the gold with scrap metal, so the authorities think the gold is destroyed, but Simon can keep it. Despite McLean and Zeus getting on Simon's escape boat, Simon escapes with the gold and leaves the two heroes on the boat to blow up. Of course, they escape, but it seems Simon has gotten away as well. But a bottle of aspirin Simon tossed to McLean reveals it was purchased in Quebec, so McLean and the NYPD invade Canada, kill Simon, say yippee ki motherfucker, and finally, after much prodding from Zeus, McLean picks up the phone to call Holly and possibly reconcile as credits roll. Or an alternate ending, but we'll get there. Oh, good. I'm glad. I only saw the one he described, and yeah, wasn't everything that I wanted it to be. But early on and quickly, I feel like, yeah, I'm in better hands this time. It does feel more like a John McTiernan movie than a Renning Harlan movie here at the beginning, right from the get-go, as we're reintroduced to the characters and New York is under siege. I mean, I love these opening shots of New York and just people walking around. It's got summer in the city playing. Like, I'm really into this. I'm like, wow, this is like a great tour of New York. And then, boom, all of a sudden there's an explosion. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a Die Hard movie. But for a few seconds, I forget that. It's just so well shot and gets me so involved in this film right away. Well, yeah, that is the perfect trick here. As you said back, they start playing a rock song. You're seeing New York. How many times have we seen these opening credits, right? We're sitting back in our theater seat, we're munching our popcorn, we're lulled into a false sense of security, and so when the credits are interrupted for an explosion that flips cars in the street before a line of dialogue is spoken and actually interrupts the song, yeah, it perfectly shakes you out of your comfort zone, which is a great way to bring you into a diehard film. And yeah, you're also seeing Manhattan during this. Listeners know that I'm infatuated with that island. I think this is a movie that stars Manhattan as much as any of the actors in it. Filmed actually in the city, not filmed in Toronto, calling it New York. And 
I think that matters a lot for the feel here. Yeah, I'm big on location and a sense of place, particularly in an action movie. McTiernan nailed it in the original with the Nakatomi Plaza, and he's nailing it here, too. Yes, as we get into the movie, I really love the way they use New York as part of the plot. But I also just think this is well told. It's funny. The script writing, I'm laughing again. I didn't laugh at all rewatching that last movie here, but I love the build here. I love that we go from a department store going up to finding out there's this strange Simon character and then this bizarre ride in a car where we're not quite sure why Bruce Willis is drunk and getting naked and heading to Harlem. This is what I love. This guy is more down here than he is in Die Hard. He's drunk. He's been suspended from the force. Every time they bring up Holly, he just cuts him off. Like, we don't know where their relationship is, but we get a sense it's bad. Like, this character is at his lowest. And I think that's when John McClane works best, when he is the total underdog. I agree. The other thing that I like here is the sense of mystery. In both previous films, we see John McClane going through his daily life, and then we see mercenaries invade a place. Here, we don't know who Simon is. We don't know what Simon wants. All we know is that a bomb has gone off in New York and John McClane is the subject. It's a great way to pull McClane into a story, not, how can the same thing happen to the same guy three times? It's not Christmas Eve, thank fucking God. And we don't know any more than he does as to why he's doing this. All you know is you don't want bombs to go off in New York. And this is pre-9-11, but this is post-World Trade Center bombing when they drove the bomb in in the van. And so this was something that was really resonating at the time. Yeah, they play off that. They literally recreate some of that imagery here later when the thing goes off in Wall Street here. They knew very well that New York was a target for terrorists and bombers, and they're working on that. But watching this scene here and the way that it's unfold, I'm ready to do it. This is the best that I've seen Bruce Willis in this part. I would say this is his finest moment as the character John McClane here. I totally think that he's playing the right level of down and out and funny, and it probably helps that he gets partnered with another really good actor and that he's got better lines here, but I have been lukewarm on Willis for two movies now, but I love him here. I think he's great. I'm almost there with you. To me, John McClane is John McClane in Nakatomi Plaza. To me, that is Bruce Willis's finest performance of his career. Here, again, as the hairline goes back, my enjoyment of Willis's performances decreases. I don't think he has the humor here that he has there. I don't think he has the charisma here. I think part of that's by design. He's supposed to be in a bad place, but it makes him less fun on screen, especially in these early scenes where he's hungover, gruff and grumpy. And really, the people who I'm liking are just a ton of supporting characters who are competent. We've not had this before in a Die Hard film, but it's reminding me a lot of The Fugitive and the way that Tommy Lee Jones had this support team around him of competent individuals, all of whom were characters in and of themselves. Here, that seems to be playing with McLean, as there's a number of cops, all of whom will play good supporting roles in the rest of this movie. He might be suspended from the police force for reasons we don't know, but he's getting along with these cops. This is a much more competent police force we see in this film. 
and they're much more likable. It's not Dennis Franz this time. I'm telling you, I'm laughing a lot here. When someone mentions stolen dump trucks, I don't go, aha, they're setting this up. I'm laughing because somebody goes, yeah, they need to extend them over to McLean's apartment to clean it up. These guys are fun. The way that they talk about the lottery and everyone's playing it, it just feels authentic. And I don't think I ever felt authenticity to this level in a Die Hard film. I think authenticity is the right word. I probably like McLean more in Die Hard because that is the best film. I like how he plays that character, but as a more ensemble film as opposed to someone that's stuck in one place by himself for most of the film. I do like the feeling in this. You're getting all this dialogue, and I'm catching it now that I've seen this film more times. But the first time, you know, they're just talking about dump trucks and the lottery, and it does feel authentic. Yeah, I agree completely. And that's one of the things that I really like about it. But that's a credit to the movie, not necessarily to Willis. Willis is part of the whole. It's great that he can play part of the whole and not be me, 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 me. But it's not the most engaging Willis performance. I would say this, though. He is not challenged to go for those big emotions. At no point do I recall him getting teary-eyed, and that is a blessing. I like the choices being made here. I like that they've largely taken Holly out of this. Bonnie Bedelia does not come back. I think that this approach, focusing on the character at this moment in his life, Willis can play that character. And yeah, you're right. Probably the other half of it is he's surrounded by all great actors who have really good lines. But not only do I think this is a better setup, I think Willis is better here. I think you're giving him short shrift. He was weak in Die Hard. There were times where he was grinning when he should not be. There were times when he was reaching and not hitting it as an actor. And here, I don't feel false notes as an actor at any point in this movie. Now, you said that you were glad Bonnie Bedelia's gone. Am I going to stand alone and say I miss her? And that I'm disappointed that after two movies of him trying to rescue her, their marriage is in shambles, and all we get is a voice on the phone that doesn't really sound like her? Even if it is, I don't know if it is, but it doesn't sound like her at all. I feel like she should have been granted at least a cameo. Well, I said with Die Hard 2, one of the things I missed was, you know, it's an action film, but there's also this relationship story going on. And that's one of the things that makes Die Hard so memorable. That was taken away out of Die Hard 2. You start to get that with the Sam Jackson, Bruce Willis relationship. Like, I thought maybe they'll go, you know, not a bromance, but we'll get into it. But they play up with race there, and that would be your relationship that goes throughout the film. So, not realizing that wouldn't really play out. I didn't miss Bonnie here because I felt like they had a substitute for what that relationship accomplished in the first film. Did they, though? Are you saying that Sam Jackson's relationship with McLean here is equivalent? Yes. I think they wanted it to be. I don't know if it is executed that well, though. It absolutely is the thing. And you know what? Whether it works better or not, at least it's something different. We don't need to see Bonnie Bedelia as the maiden in the tower to be rescued a third time. That story is played out. They're not going to do it any better than the first one. Why not partner him up with another person? Why not give him Zeus and skip Holly? Why give him Zeus, though? Let's go there. Why does he need this reluctant, antagonistic partner? I realize that, yes, it's a staple of buddy cop films. Last week we mentioned Lethal Weapon, but there's so many. I think 48 Hours is one of the originators of the two partners who really don't like each other kind of thing that we have going here. But does John McClane need a partner? There has always been the helpful black 
supporting character. They've just never given him any kind of antagonistic quality before. But Al from the first movie, Leslie from the last one, Zeus is just another version of that. But yes, the banter, the playfulness is different because, well, I had to think about it. But in 1995, not only are we post Rodney King, we're post OJ. And things were pretty difficult here in America with entertainment. They were finding white audiences were not going to see black movies, vice versa. There was real divisiveness. And they felt like if they were going to partner a black man and a white man in a movie like this, it would have to not just be subtext. They would have to deal with that racial tension because this is pre-verdict, OJ. This is still on everyone's mind at this time when that is watching this movie, that OJ trial mentality. Well, then let me be cynical. Based on what you just said, is Sam Jackson here only to bring in an African-American audience if African-Americans wouldn't see white movies and Bruce Willis is white? No, no, I'm from the other side of this. White audiences would not want to see Bruce side with a Harlem shopkeeper. They need this character as a way of softening that tension. They're trying to de-ice a situation here, and they know that Sam Jackson is going to kill in this part. They've got the perfect man to do it. But I don't think it's about bringing black audiences in where they wouldn't watch it. Or quite the opposite. I think they're catering to the white audience. One of the things that sticks out when I think about films of the 90s is you have the Spike Lee films. You had Boys in the Hood. Zeus comes off very much like the Lawrence Fishburne character in Boys in the Hood, where he's against black gangs and wants his kids to go to school, get a college education. But he's also very much a black separatist, and he wants good, strong black businesses in black neighborhoods. And there was that tension in films in the 90s, and they're kind of going off that and playing off that, especially when we get introduced to Zeus. You know, he's lecturing his son. Why aren't you in school trying to be this good kid? But he's also suspicious of white people. Right. It's almost a do the right thing situation because ultimately there's almost a race riot that happens outside of his shop here because Willis, indeed, when he's reached his destination and his buddies have to go 10 blocks away, he's standing in his boxer shorts with that sandwich board on just waiting for Simon to intervene before he gets killed. Well, I'm going to make the case as we go through this movie that Sam Jackson is a pretty useless character. I have always enjoyed Sam Jackson in movies. When this came out, as we mentioned, I was excited to see Sam Jackson in a diehard film. I like Sam Jackson in this film, but from a script perspective, from a story perspective, and especially when we get to the climax, I don't get why he's in this film. And Arnie, I'm probably going to agree with you. This starts off building off those white and black racial tensions. Rodney King, all those examples were there in the 90s. And I was going into this, watching this for the first time or just now thinking about it from a writing sense. That's what you'd want to do with this. You want to build off that relationship. You know, Die Hard 2, they set up this whole John McClane doesn't like technology thing, goes nowhere. And I kind of feel like that's what happens here is you set off this odd couple, white, black, this racial tension, and you got to do something with that. And I don't know if anything really happens because of that here. Look, I do feel like Willis needed a partner here. I don't think I would have wanted him running around New York talking to himself the whole time. We need for him to play off someone here. And if they have to contrive a somebody to play off of, they pick the best possible outcome. I'd rather have him be doing this with a total stranger like Sam Jackson than with his wife or estranged wife. I don't think that would have worked at all. 
I agree. But in the last two, he was primarily radioing back to his partner or having very mild contact with his partner. To be joined at the hip with a partner for this whole movie feels very different. But I just wish that if you were going to have a buddy movie that they felt like equals because they seem to be sold to us as equals. But yet this is a diehard film. This is a John McClane film. And so I don't know if there were egos on the set or if this is from the Simon Says script, but John McClane gets all the heroics. Yes. Unlike the last film, all of the big stuff is done by Bruce Willis. And that's as it should be, right? It's his movie franchise. He should be the one winning here. We don't want another Blade Trinity situation where Wesley Snipes is one-upped by new people that are more popular and of the moment. I think that is right to give him those moments. I think ultimately what we might deduce about the use of Zeus is that he is here primarily for the one-liners, the comic relief, and for playing with that racial subtext. But as far as plot-driven, no, you wouldn't have needed this character for the plot that they have to spell out here. There's nothing that he can do other than the fact that he's smart. You know, he's the one, as they get into the Simon Says clues, can do math in his head really fast. And he seems to be a little bit more clever than I think John McClane we would buy as. True, but then again, you can just always have the wise truck driver with all your answers, too. I mean, they obviously can write that in. You mentioned the racial tension, and that's something else that I don't feel is really played out very well here. As an adult in today's age, I was really paying attention to all of their conversations where Bruce Willis is like, you don't like me because I'm white. But that doesn't play at all into the plot against the villain. The villain isn't racially motivated. The villain isn't even of a different race. Nor do McLean and Zeus have an epiphany where they sing Kumbaya and Ebony and Ivory together. It's just there for banter's sake. And that also feels disingenuous. Well, that's what I'm saying, Arnie. If you're going to replace Holly, you got to have another person to build a relationship. I felt that was successful from the first Die Hard film, but they fail at progressing it at all. They start off not liking each other, and I guess they kind of like each other at the end. There's no why to why they like each other. It's almost Stockholm. Yeah. Yes, it is Stockholm Syndrome, yes. But I thought they were going to do something that was going to come back. Here in the early scene, when he's just talking to these two boys that have turned in a boombox, he says something like, don't trust white people. I thought they were going to do something at the end. And when we get there in the plot, I'll mention it, that would show Zeus that you can trust white people. But they kind of steer away with it. It would have been a sticky thing. I am sure that the movie execs at Fox were probably unhappy that this was even being discussed in their big summer blockbuster. It cannot be underplayed how dicey these kinds of conversations were in 1995. Well, it was so dicey that when they filmed this scene with the sandwich board, it was actually filmed in Harlem. They were so worried about this causing actual riots or violence or people getting upset and calling the police while they filmed. This is actually shot with a blank sandwich board, and they CGI'd that in afterwards. Huh. Yeah. Well, I can understand that. If only the ejection from the exploding plane looked as good as the sandwich board. <laughs> Has been five years of improvements in special effects. True. This is post-Jurassic Park. They can do a sandwich board. I had no idea that was CGI. But, yeah, those are some of the things in this movie that are there, but they don't add anything to it. They don't pay off. But there is a lot here that does pay off. You were talking about McTiernan being back. 
thank God he's back because this movie literally starts with a bang. And that bang is like the firing of a pistol at the start of a race. Because this movie just goes. Instantly, he's in Harlem. He's about to be attacked by the gang. He meets Zeus. I love, still to this day, no matter how many times I've seen it, the first time I saw this in theaters, I thought Sam Jackson's character was named Jesus. It's good lines. I'm telling you, these are funny lines again. I have no shame in laughing at them. You know, I got to say, not seeing this before, I like Jeremy Irons. I knew he was the bad guy calling in. I can recognize his voice in a heartbeat. But when he started doing this riddle kind of stuff, I was really hoping they weren't going to do too much of it. And they don't. I feel like it's just enough here. But the next thing is about something about sacks and cats and wives and all that. I'm like, ooh, if this is the whole movie, I may really have to turn on Jeremy Irons. And the original script was, but once they decided to make this a diehard film, like I said, about the first 40, 50 minutes were pretty much from the original Simon Says script. And then they turned it more into your traditional diehard film with the plot twist. So a lot of that drops out the second half. Mm -hmm. It's better for it because it is kind of foolish. It makes sense, though, given Jeremy Irons' plot. Given that he's pretending to have this revenge plot against McClane, that he would have these crazy riddles, would keep the cops tied up and keep them completely focused on the McClane thing and not worrying about this. It's a magician's act of misdirection and sleight of hand, and I do enjoy it. And that's another staple of these diehard films, these convoluted heists that these criminals come up with. So, yeah, it makes sense here that there's going to be six or seven different tricks of hand before we figure out what's actually going on. Yeah, I love that about this movie, too. They had me. I was for sure that once we find out that it's Han's brother, Simon, I was sure that he was targeting McLean to get vengeance on the brother. It's a delight when we find out that there are other motives at play entirely and that that's really not it at all. I think that the cleverness of the script works. Here's a, I guess, embarrassing secret. Arnie's revealed plenty. I said after I saw that first Die Hard film, like, I really started to understand the mechanics of how to write an action film, at least. And, you know, when I was 12 or 13, yes, I wrote a piece of Die Hard. It was a script. You could call it fan fiction. (laughs) I, I had dreams it would get made someday. And it was this. Hans's brother comes back to get revenge. Like, that makes sense. This is such a direct sequel to that first film. It makes sense that Hans, if he had a brother, that yes, he would want revenge. And if you're thinking about how implausible it is that the same cop keeps getting into these hostage situations, this is a conceit that makes that more plausible that, hey, the terrorist he killed in the first film has a brother and he's come back now. And doesn't it almost feel like they've written off part two? Like maybe John never did go to be an L.A. cop, that he just stayed in New York and they got more and more estranged. I almost feel like because this one is so tightly woven with that first film and really not with the second one, you could really skip the second one. And I recommend you do so. I'm sure McTiernan would like that. I'm sure the person who's smarting the most is Reginald Vell Johnson, who was stuck. The only role he could get is a making of documentary they included on my Blu-ray. Believe it or not, he actually is walking around the sets saying this movie would be better if I was in it. And Sam Jackson's like, but you're an L.A. cop and this is in New York. And I just feel bad for poor Mr. Urkel. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, after seeing Johnson's work with Urkel, no, wrong buddy movie here. Oh, my God. Yes. You complain about Sam Jackson. It could have been Urkel. <laughs> A bomb goes off. Did I do that? <laughs> 
I'm surprised there hasn't been an SNL skit on this. You mentioned the great action, though, and I'm into these action scenes when they realize they have 30 minutes to beat a train, basically, down to Wall Street. This is really good stuff here. I love this. Can you call it a car chase? The car race through Central Park and on the sidewalk? actually filmed driving through Central Park. Stuart, you said authenticity. You get that feeling throughout this film. They actually drove, they got permission to drive a taxi cab through the park. If it was blue screen stuff, I probably wouldn't have laughed at the mime joke, but I did. I'm with this scene. (laughs) I'm into it. The mime joke, I don't know I ever laughed at, but it's delivered right. It's like, I don't think I'm supposed to laugh at it. It's just kind of a deadpan thing, but it's in such an exciting scene as they're doing that drive. And To this day, anytime I see an ambulance driving down the road, even before rewatching it for this retrospective, I'm like, get behind the linebacker. It's a little bit far-fetched that Bruce ends up, like, jumping atop the train. I mean, they really push this as far as they can, but I'm going with it. I mean, that's why I really like they have Sam Jackson here, is that they can do two big things at once. That Sam Jackson can wind up at gunpoint by a cop trying to answer a phone, and Bruce Willis can be running around the train trying to throw a bomb off the back. I mean, I think that's why you have two instead of one in New York. And it's the little details in the scene that really get me to go with it. Like, the way the bomb is hidden on the subway, it's in a police call box. I just like how clever they were with coming up with that. And then the whole scene with Sam Jackson, you know, he kind of takes the phone out of this guy's hand, and a cop holds him at gunpoint. I guess that's the penalty for jumping a fare in a New York subway is you get shot, perhaps. It was Giuliani, New York, keep in mind. They were really cracking down. Yeah, if I were that cop, I would understand the need to subdue him. But what I like about the cop is how green he seems. He's like this rookie cop. He's not racist. They could have gone with the big stereotype, but they didn't. It's these little details that help in a film. Yeah, I really think that for the first half of this movie, and you saying this is the original part of the script, it really is very well written. This is coming from John Hegeland, who I don't always think writes really well written things like Punisher 2004. (laughs) In addition to the writing... It's just so kinetic, and you got to give McTiernan and the editing team some real credit the way it all plays. It is just exciting. I have seen this movie a large number of times. I have all three of these first Die Hard films. I really can't count how many times I've seen this in the past almost 20 years it's been out. But watching it for this time, I was actually a little afraid that I might not enjoy the action having seen it so many times. But no, just like the first Die Hard, I am in all of these action scenes. I'm excited. They are fun to watch, even if you know the outcome is just really well made as well as well written. The second one never competed with the first one. This one here in the first hour particularly, if it's a lesser film, it's not by much. It's working in lots of the same ways, right down to the villain, Jeremy Irons. I really like him. Just even when we see just his voice for this first 40 minutes, he has such a great voice. It's as good as Alan Rickman. Or if it's not, it's close enough. I really think that, yay, at last we have another villain that's really a a great baddie that can really grab us. I don't think he surpasses Rickman, but I do think he stands up. He's not far behind Rickman. He is someone charismatic. said with the last film how it had a much darker tone. There's these villains, like, you never want to really get on their side or empathize with them because they are so bad here. 
again, bringing back a little bit of that cool factor. They got all these different henchmen with them running around in their combat boots, you know, with these crazy knives slitting throats. Like, they're cool again. Yeah, but they're not anonymous. They split the difference. I mean, Jeremy Iron has some of the snivelingness of Alan Rickman, but he's also got physicality. You know, he busts off when we finally see him. He takes off the coat or whatever. He's wearing something sleeveless and all of this. I mean, I don't think that he, you know, bulks up at the gym, but he could probably hold his own in a fencing match or something. He's got some physicality here, more than Rickman, that makes him seem like he would be someone to reckon with in a fight as well. I think it's a good split of difference between the villain and Die Hard and Die Harder. And Jeremy Irons is a guy I haven't seen in a whole lot. When I think of him, I usually think of either this movie or the Cronenberg movie Dead Ringers, which he is just imprinted in my brain for. And because of that movie, he brings a type of creepiness that works well in a villainous role kind of like this one. I think that he's not doing what Hans did. He's doing something different. But it's almost like an iteration of Colonel Stewart from the last one. He has Colonel Stewart's toughness and competence while still being an enjoyable on-screen presence. And much like with Rickman's scene where he plays American in the first Die Hard, I really enjoy Jeremy Irons' scenes where he plays a city worker and adopts that really bad southern accent. Yeah, it's 50 minutes before we see him, but I can just feel the picture change when we finally get him on screen and he's giggling. Oh, they bought it. You know, he sends them off on more chases. He says there's the school rigged somewhere in Manhattan. Go find it. And everyone clears out of Wall Street. Meanwhile, the movie really starts to focus on him. We forget about Zeus and McLean. And for the next 10 minutes, it really is about Jeremy Irons doing his heist on the Federal Reserve. They bring back the dump trucks. I love that. I did not see that coming back. Whenever you watch a film for now playing, I guess you pay a little bit more attention. Like, I caught all the little hits this time that I've never caught before. It especially helps when you're watching it the second or third time, when you know what's coming and you start hearing about the dump trucks. But yeah, you know what else I really like, though, is in the first movie we talked about Ode to Joy. Here, John McTiernan has burned into my head when Johnny comes marching home with those dump trucks. And I just love the rendition of it in this score. It would be really hard to live up to Ode to Joy in the first. I would never think you could do it with When Johnny Comes Marching Home, a song that, at best, it can be played ironically. But here, it completely works. Well, McTiernan's very deliberate with his music choices. He picked Ode to Joy in the first one because of A Clockwork Orange. And he liked how, you know, you associated this classical music with this villain. And he loves Kubrick, so, well, this was the big theme song of Dr. Strangelove. So he brought it in here. Huh. Okay. I never made that Kubrick connection at all. I was wondering about that. I thought maybe it was just they were, you know, being funny. It's John McClane. Johnny's come home to New York. I really didn't understand the choice, but like Arnie, I appreciated the scoring of it. Yeah, I honestly thought Johnny was John McClane. It works that way for sure. But I'm telling you, I wasn't thinking about John McClane here. Once they start bringing in the drills, once they really go at it, I'm really fascinated, more so than in the first movie, with trying to get through the seven locks. How are they going to rob the Federal Reserve? How are they going to steal billions of dollars? That's crazy. They even call it out. You know, Goldfinger's plot of Fort Knox is nothing compared to this. And this scene where they're breaking into the vault has my single favorite shot of the entire movie where you had this lone holdout guard. And coming in behind him is Katya, the female killer in Gruber's team. And 
you see this on a security monitor that's pointed behind him. And so it's like this picture-in-picture thing that just really is very cool to me. Yeah, going back to McTiernan, how he shot this really builds the tension. You got the security guard, he's trying to load a shotgun, he's just shooting blindly. And the whole time, you know, this music's playing, you just see Katya stroll on in, very taking her time, and the way it's shot through these monitors, it's done in a way to really build the tension. What I think that we have to credit here, though, is when Die Hard came out in 88, we had good enough villains. But I think Reservoir Dogs really upped the ante for teams of professional thieves. And so you started to have to have a little bit more uniqueness and a little bit more toughness. And so when Katya is doing these really cool killing twist moves and taking out the guard and you've got the other guy with his guns and then you've got Jeremy Irons as the brains, it really feels like a great team. And yeah, I could almost see a movie just working with this team on a job, you know, kind of like the Italian job or something like that, Ocean's Eleven, with this group. Yeah, it's even weirder for me because Sam Phillips is like a coffeehouse singer. I mean, she's like, this is not her image. I know her vaguely as a musician, and I don't know if she's ever acted again, but this was a bizarre choice that ended up really working nicely. I think it really helps that she never speaks. She's just always got that cigarette in her mouth. But she's really a cool henchman. They also got this guy, Otto. I guess he's Russian, and I don't really get it, but he's the one they leave planted here in the Federal Reserve that ends up killing one of John McClane's guys and taking his badge and identity. He's a good-looking stuntman. He's got the nice beefiness to him. I didn't see that coming back either, but the lottery thing will end up playing a big part when McClane comes back here. It all plays out. I'm really impressed with this script, and I do think more than that second film, they're finding ways to remind you about these villains. Because truly, those keep multiplying here. I mean, there's so many, it would be impossible to give them all their moment here. But I like the fact that they've made these selections about who to remember of the bad guys and give them certain locations. Like, this is the guy at the Federal Reserve that he's going to have to fight. But once they get the gold, I start to think the movie loses focus. It becomes a chase film with McLean and Zeus trying to catch up. You talked about McLean and the badge. You get not one, but two instances in this movie where the bad guys could kill Zeus. The first one, Zeus is taking the bomb up to who he thinks are cops. They're actually terrorists undercover while McLean goes into the bank. And the terrorist is saying to Jeremy Irons, should I kill him? Should I kill him? And Irons just like, no. Why not? Go ahead, kill him. <laughs> I agree. This is exactly the moment where the movie starts eh, skidding. I wouldn't say sliding or falling. I don't understand, actually, why some things happen. It sort of starts to play like TV for me. Like sometimes I'll be watching a TV show and people will be like, blah, 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 blah. I don't really know what's going on, but I know that they're going to figure it out. So I don't worry about it. And I just kick back and wait for them to tell me what happened. And You mean like me in the entire James Bond series? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I do feel like the next 20 minutes or so is a lot of like, well, I don't know why they're pulling over this truck. I don't even understand the clues anymore. I've never understood any riddle that Simonist says. So when he's talking about this whole half of 42 is 21 and who's that going to be? Like, I don't know what's going on. One of the things that I found kind of confusing when Zeus is taking that bomb up to the fake cops, the terrorists, is at one point the terrorist like sets it down on the sidewalk and the guy's like, put it in the trunk. 
What if a kid finds it? I'm like, huh? They're blowing up stuff. Why do they care if a kid finds this bomb? They're planning on blowing up a school, which we see isn't quite the plan later on, but maybe that's a clue. Maybe they're trying to clue us in. This time watching it, I took it as a clue, but, you know, on previous watchings, I get very confused why these terrorists are so concerned about just leaving a bomb sitting there. I always took it as a moment of humor. But what epitomizes the second act for me is that McLean and Zeus get tickets to Yankee Stadium. And they're like, what's at Yankee Stadium? Who cares? We'll go there later. That's how this entire second half of this film feels to me. Is like, <laughs> who cares? We'll go there later. Let's yell and chase after somebody. At this point, they run into the kids that are, I don't know, I guess they stole some Twinkies or something. And they're like, hey, why aren't you in school? Why are you doing this? And the kid's like, there's no cops anywhere. You could rob City Hall. And that's where things click. And instead of going to Yankee Stadium, they go and check out the Federal Reserve. And that's where McLean gets some good kills in. Yep. This moment I don't have a problem with. It's really everything else that happens right afterwards here. Bruce gets to go chasing after a dump truck in a tunnel. And yeah, Zeus is almost shot, but not shot at the Yankee Stadium. And I get educated about who the 21st president is. I had no idea Chester <laughs> Arthur was even a president, much less the 21st one. I would have never come up with that name ever. I have to ask, was Hillary Clinton known for being a bad driver? I don't get that. Who do you think you are, lady? Hillary Clinton? She was the first lady at the time. I know that. <laughs> I guess they cursed her name a lot in New York. I don't know. Well, yeah, she was known to be an opinionated, you know, maybe she was driving the White House. Never forget when Clinton sort of put her in charge of health care. It took people off. People did not like how strong-willed Hillary Clinton was. So I guess an aggressive female driver could have been called a Hillary Clinton. At one point, they say Hillary Clinton will probably be our 43rd president. They don't even know how close they got. Almost, guys. But I guess even Zeus couldn't have predicted Obama. You know, one of the big what the hell's going on moments for me is we get this Bruce Willis is driving through this aqueduct in this truck following the other dump trucks. And he gets out to approach one of the terrorist dump trucks. And he's like, hey, I'm looking for someone. He starts talking about Santa Claus. And I'm like, what the isn't this in the summer? Is he throwing out Santa Claus references just because the first two films were associated with Christmas? Yes. And they wanted to find some way to associate this with Christmas? Like, I'm so confused during that little monologue he gives. Yeah, there's a couple of little references. There's also another moment where he's talking to Zeus, and he's like, things could be worse. You could be smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo, which, you know, is the song from Pulp Fiction. So I think that through dialogue, they made little notes to other Bruce Willis films. Maybe. I don't know. Confusion did rule it in this part. This is where it morphed from being Goldfinger into a view to a kill. All of a sudden, he's trying to outdrive a giant tidal wave. I didn't see this coming. And he gets shot up through a pipe just as Zeus happens to be driving by? Like, <laughs> huh? Oh, they said they were going to meet there. Yeah, no, this thing is now hydroplaning. It was skidding before, but I'm now like, eh, maybe this movie isn't going to work. I'm a little nervous at this point. But once they get some focus back to Chester Arthur School and they have this bomb plot happening at the school, all of that I really dig. And even the contrivance that it's the two kids that who's told to go into school that are in the school now sneaking away to play cards in a room because they don't want to be in assembly. I like all of this. I do too. Again, it's taking me back to the U.S. Marshals from The Fugitive. I really love that these cops are competent and that they are given personalities. You see the one cop who's leading the kids out crossing himself. And 
the guy who's the bomb guy, he's a little bit goofy. He blows up a paper clip earlier. His name's Charlie. Everybody's yelling at him. You really expect him to be a buffoon? No, he's a hero who stays behind when he hears there are kids willing to sacrifice himself. These are good men, and they round out a team. That's actually the moment that I thought Zeus was going to learn. I thought for sure Charlie was dead because Zeus had told those specific kids that no white man would help them. I thought this was it. I thought this was the teaching moment for Zeus to realize, wow, these kids are alive because of this white man. But they don't kill him. It ends up not being a real bomb. That was a real surprise, and I'm not sure I liked it. It is a shock. Even this time watching it, I've watched this one more than two, but it's been a while. And for some reason, I had in my mind that this bomb goes off and Charlie dies. He sacrifices himself. And it was a shock the first time I saw it. Like, I get sucked in by this scene. If these action scenes or chasing dump trucks have lost me, this whole school scene brings that tension back to this film. And especially Charlie. Like, it's such a bit part, but it's the character that really, you know, besides Samuel Jackson, Bruce Willis, he's like this character that really stands out to me because. It's just this little heroic role, but he's willing to sacrifice himself to buy a few more minutes for these kids to get out of there. Question, and maybe we'll never know, but I can never tell if the juice shoots on him because that's what the bomb is programmed to do when the time's up, or if he did something that would have defused the bomb and not allowed the liquids to mix, and it turns out that it's sugar syrup. My take on it was that he probably, because some of the liquid was pouring out, would have been a lesser explosion. But I think it still would have gone off, is my take on it anyway. They really did steal explosives. It should be said there was this chemical plant that reported this large amount of explosives. It's a binary liquid bomb. So there's two fluids that you need here. That stuff does exist. They actually have it somewhere else. But that's my take on it, is that, yeah, it probably would have still blown up the school. If a paperclip takes out a chair, if he takes out half the liquid, the school and the city block are still gone. And that's why I always took this as this was like corn syrup or something. This was a ruse, and it kind of pays off why those terrorists dressed as cops are so concerned about a child finding the bomb. Like, it makes that whole weird line actually pay off, is that, no, they really don't want to blow up a bunch of little kids, but this was a fake bomb. There's nothing explosive about it. They just needed to make it real enough that the bomb squad and the police would spend all their time trying to defuse it if they found it. Yeah, these are terrorists that actually, they're working from a political stance, at least some of them. One of them, for particular, there's a Czech that's involved in this. He's really the political mind here. They're not out to kill people. They're not out to rob people. They're trying to make a statement for the greater of humanity. They're humanist terrorists, so it wouldn't make sense for them to kill a school full of children to make their point about globalism. They actually drop a line that they were paid off by a Middle Easterner to blow up the gold. So I don't know, the Middle East would be richer or something? You're right. Well, yeah, there's a lot of twists that happen here. But my understanding of this, at least for a majority of it, is for some of these people, it is a statement. Some are much more idealist than others turn out to be in the film. Right. But not Jeremy Irons. Like his brother, it's all about the Benjamins, or in this case, the Boolean. Right. And so he's got all of that allegedly on a big barge that's leaving New York. I have no idea, no idea, guys, how Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson figure out it's on there and they're on a bridge and suddenly they're climbing down Batman 66 style. I don't get it. This moment is the moment in theaters where I decided Die Hard had gone too far because they're looking at this boat and they're standing on a bridge and they go, let's jump. No, it's too far, we'll die. 
Okay, let's grab the cable. It will cut us in half. Okay, let's climb the cable. Oops, we're falling the same distance we would have jumped, and we're fine and going to continue on. It is the moment where it went from die hard to die impossible. This guy, nothing can hurt him. It is merely a line of dialogue. Do not set up. If we fall, we will be messed up. Then fall and get up and move on. Well, I think that's because there's cables on the boat, and if they jumped and hit those cables, it'd slice them in half. I mean, it wasn't if they just fell and didn't hit the cables, they'd still get sliced in half. And indeed, that fall is not as great as what they were talking about. They were talking about jumping from the bridge to landing on the barge. Uh, what they end up falling from is essentially sort of the crane area. Yeah, they're still several hundred feet, still a fatal fall by any measure, but not the ridiculous, let's jump off a bridge that Zeus originally proposed. I'm all for suspension of disbelief, and I'm all for giving John McClane the benefit of the doubt. Oh, a million bullets came your way. I guess you're the star of this movie because you're one lucky motherfucker. But this was the first stunt in three movies that I went bullshit. So much of these stunts up to this point have felt real. We shot it on location. Here, this is some obvious blue screen work and not very good at that. If he's been able to do what he's done in the last two movies and what he's done so far in this movie, this doesn't seem like the stunt to put it over the top for me. And then when they get on the boat, they really accomplish nothing. Sam Jackson gets shot in the knee. And they're tied up. I mean, they got face-to-face -face with the bad guy and lose. Let me talk about Sam Jackson getting shot in the knee for a second. Because towards the beginning of this film, we had some racial tension going on. It looks like they're getting along now. John McClane gives him this machine gun. Here, pull here to load, pull the trigger to shoot. He doesn't tell him about the safety, though. That seems like kind of a dick move. To not make sure the safety's turned off. Like, here's the white man screwing the black man again. Well, he was distracted fighting other guys, to be fair. I don't know. They needed to do something here. I like the way the scene plays, which is that Sam Jackson busts in there with that gun. Jeremy Irons should be worried in some way. Instead, he's just kind of peeling an egg. He's like, yeah, whatever. In a minute, I'm going to take care of you. I like the way it plays out, however contrived it might be. I'm liking the performances. Do not get me wrong on that. And the first few times I watched this movie, the performances were enough to keep me with it and not realizing, hey, this is really just prolonging things. So, yeah, I'm enjoying watching people do these things, but it's really just setting up yet another impossible situation for these characters to get out of as they're strapped upon the biggest bomb in the world. And that's what I don't like. I don't like that they ultimately, just because they get free and jump into some water, don't explode with all of this real explosives. The stuff that, yeah, they've already shown that in tiniest quantities create a pretty big bang. This is over 2,000 pounds of explosives. Yeah, it's silly, but it's really about the banter at this point. We're just to appreciate any time that Willis and Jackson are on screen. It's sort of a sequel to Pulp Fiction, too. It's just, we want to see these guys talk. We want to see them go at each other. And I can only appreciate it in that sense. And their escape, the second thing I had a problem with, even the first time I watched it, Bruce Willis takes some of that explosive, puts it on a crowbar to break the handcuffs, I think you'd probably take off both of Sam Jackson's hands. He did say, ow, looked like he got burned. It did. It actually, it looked so much like he got burned, I feel bad for him every time I see this. It's like his hands are crippled from that moment on. And really, we don't see him ever do anything again. Ever. And he's an electrician. This is a man who needs his hands. <laughs> but 
this is the end of Sam Jackson's, dare I call it, usefulness. Whatever he's supposed to have been useful for, now he's literally just along for the ride. Because Jeremy Irons has escaped to Quebec. This ending is terrible. I literally don't understand it here. Bruce Willis at one point when still in captivity says, hey, I got a headache. We've seen Jeremy Irons popping aspirin all the time. So he jovially tosses it into his handcuffed laugh. Somehow that still is in his pocket after he jumps off the exploding boat. What is written on it that makes him know where the bad guys are? French. The code on, yeah, on the bottom of it. Ah, okay. So what if they hadn't gone to Canada and this aspirin just had been imported from Canada? I guess that wouldn't have happened. All right. Well, my bigger question is what the fuck is the NYPD doing in Quebec? This ending has always felt to me so tacked on. It reminds me a little bit of the end of Point Break, where like you have the big climax and the villain gets away. And then it's like one year later, and then they're facing off. I do not know how much time has passed. I'm taking it not much since Zeus is still on the chopper and still looking infirmed. The fact that Zeus comes along with them makes no sense. This is a police. I would hope the FBI is with them. No, no, no. The Mounties. This is Quebec. (laughs) What the fuck is the NYPD or the FBI doing there? They need the Mounties. You know, they're the Mountie. Dudley Durite's going to come in. (laughs) I understand, like, from a Hollywood story viewpoint, okay, you're not just going to leave Zeus behind, but it's still ridiculous. That might be a cliche that you got to keep them together to the very end, but it's stupid. I do not like this ending. Listen, Gruber needed a henchman. There had to be a second person. Gruber killed his own henchman. But Jackson needed somebody to face off with. You always have that at the end of these films. The hero takes on the biggest bad, but the sidekick takes on a sidekick bad. All Gruber had left was a woman, so if it had been Bonnie Bedelia this whole time, we could have had the chick-on-chick fight. But Sam Jackson just sitting in a chopper going, yeah, is not fulfilling. And the fact is the chopper gets shot down and John shoots some, what, electrical wires onto Simon's helicopter and that blows it up? He's got the smaller gun, which should mean that he's the screwed one, but he uses that small gun, yeah, to shoot a cable. You gotta have an explosion, and diehard films end in explosions. And yippee motherfuckers. So there is an alternate ending. You said you feel like this was kind of tacked on. There was an alternate ending shot. For this film. Well, give it to me. I'd like to know what it is. I already like it better. (laughs) (laughs) I think I do, too. Now, it's some months or maybe a year after Simon gets away. So you would have cut from John and Zeus swimming out of the water to this end scene. And Simon, he's in Hungary. And John shows up by himself, tracked him down the same way with the aspirin bottle. But this time, the aspirin bottle had the stamp. He figured it out. It had a Hungarian stamp. And so he had gone over to Hungary to track down Simon. He sits down with Simon. You find out that John's been fired from the police force, that the FBI has taken away his pension because they think they're investigating him for working with Simon to pull this heist. And so John, you know, he's even lower at the end of the film than he was at the beginning. He has nothing. He shows up. He says, we're going to play McLean says, and he has this little mini RPG rocket. He's taken off the site, so you don't know which is the front and which is the back. And basically, 
he says, I'm going to ask you riddles. And once you get it wrong, you're going to have to spin this around in the form of Russian roulette. It's going to be pointing at us and you're going to have to pull the trigger. It's either going to hit you or it's going to hit me. One of us are going to die. And so he starts asking his riddles. He gets to one. What could you have brought that would have saved your life? Of course, Simon can't answer. So he makes him pull the trigger on this RPG. It goes through Simon's body. He dies. And the answer was a flak jacket because it's such a mini RPG. It would have hurt him, but it wouldn't have killed him. And that's what McLean was wearing. So it's a much more brutal, a much more, I think, darker ending. And that's why the studios didn't like it. What's weird is this is called Die Hard with a Vengeance, but they didn't feel that John McClane would actually go out for revenge or vengeance. And that was uncharacteristic of him. I like the ending better. It is darker. He is at a lower point in his life, but it's more satisfying than what we got here. I watched that on the bonus features and it feels very weird. It's like just the two of them talking. It's very noirish. It doesn't feel at all like anything else in the film. And it feels as tacked on, if not more than this. I'll tell you, it may have a little bit more character resolution as it shows McLean really got shit on as part of this. He even says at one point they thought he was involved in the theft and he does take out almost hostile like revenge on Gruber. But man, believe it or not, Stuart, I'm going to side with the theatrical ending for at least having more adrenaline. Both are illogical messes. I don't love it, and I didn't see it, but I don't like what we got. That's all I can tell you, is that the only ending that I've been given, I want something else here. It's a real letdown, and what, for the most part, has been keeping pace with the original. This ending does not do that. I'll tell you, both times make me feel like we needed to go back to the well, but... The theatrical ending, at least it's got explosions. At least it's got more payoff. It feels more like a diehard ending. I honestly think that this other ending was shot like as a contractual requirement. They had one camera set up, three hours, two actors go. It's almost as not put together as like the alternate ending in True Romance where you see some scenes intercut with storyboards. That's how unfinished it feels. So Jacob, Stewart, do you recommend Die Hard with a Vengeance? Jacob. You know, in some ways, I feel this has almost the opposite problem of Die Hard 2. That one, it takes a while to get me into the film. This one, I start off into the film right away. And as it goes on, it does get weaker. Things get more convoluted. The storytelling's not as tight. I don't like this ending at all. Like, I did not remember this ending when we got to it. I I was watching this. I'm like, I have no recollection of this Nova Scotia, the cops, New York cops riding in helicopters getting shot like it'd been excised from my mind it's not very strong but i think the characters in here bruce willis samuel jackson the various cops there's a great ensemble in this film and so towards the end when jackson and willis you know what they're given to do isn't quite as engaging i'm now i'm more engaged in what the actual cops are doing rescuing the children from this school trying to defuse the bomb so there's trade-offs. I'm not with the stars of the film the whole time, but there's always something, for the most part, engaging me here. And I really like the action in this film. You get all these riddles, and they're kind of goofy, but it spawns a lot of great action. Chases through Central Park, or these crazy car rides through Central Park, and various shootouts and fights. So I think this is a much more recommendable film than 2, which I recommended. Because the ending is so weak, I don't think... It's even in the same ballpark, the same Yankee Stadium as the first Die Hard film, but a fun film, an entertaining film, a good action film, and I think a good Die Hard film. So I could give this a solid recommend. 
Stewart. Yeah, a big improvement over the last one. The real sequel. I like this. I really think it came close to capturing what I liked about the original. There are just these problems. They, some of the connections on how things are figured out in the middle are not so great. The ending is, yeah, pretty close to terrible. But I'm not going to let that hold back my enthusiasm. I would say this is almost as good. And Jeremy Irons is probably as good as the villain here. Willis is the best he's ever been. There's a lot to celebrate here. Best partner he's ever been partnered with. I feel like they really came close to equaling Die Hard here. Yeah, I'll give it a recommend with a vengeance. It's it's very solid. I'm going to go three for three on a solid recommend. I don't think it holds a lighter to the first Die Hard just because I think that the script is a lot looser. It starts with problems and it just gets more tangled and convoluted as it goes. It feels like a production somewhat out of control just looking at the end product. It seems like it started with a great script. I think it's a wonderful idea that they took a good movie and decided to put John McClane in it rather than try to come up with a good John McClane movie. But Jacob, the point where you say Simon Says Stops and Die Hard Started, that's the point where the problem started as well. I like this movie. I really think I might have liked Simon Says more if you didn't have John McClane in it and we could have had a different action franchise. But what we get here, it's good. It's really good. The first hour has some of the best action of the 90s. I recommend it and... I thought I'd put a great cap on a Die Hard trilogy. Trilogies are very in vogue. I really thought for the longest time that this would be the last we would see of John McClane. Bruce Willis's career rebounded. He became a big star again. He had Armageddon, Sixth Sense, the whole nine yards, Sin City. He just was completely cemented. I didn't see him needing John McClane again. I didn't see the world needing John McClane again. So imagine my astonishment and cautious optimism 12 years later when I found out John McClane is really hard to kill. Well, I haven't seen it, and I'm curious. What happens when he picks up that phone and calls Holly? I do not know what's going to happen in the next film. I'm trying to even think if I can think of the plot. I believe it's in L.A., and I think it has something to do with computer hacking, and that's probably all I can tell you. So we will be back next week to live free or die hard. Head over to nowplayingpodcast.com where you can find all of the reviews in this die hard retrospective, as well as hundreds of other movie reviews. Predator, The X-Files, Tron, Star Trek, The Avengers, and so many more, all at nowplayingpodcast.com. And we still have some of the Now Playing 5th Anniversary DVDs available. You can find out all the details on how to get that and our Previous exclusive Child's Play, Jaws, Steven Spielberg, Thing, Exorcist, and Living Dead retrospective series, plus tons of bonus content. Get all the details by clicking the banner at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. So thanks for coming to the party, pal! What you get for being a hero? Nothing. Get shot at. Get a little pat on the back. Blah blah blah. Out of boy. Get divorced. A wife can't remember your last name. Kids don't want to talk to you. Get 
to eat a lot of meals by yourself. Trust me, kid, nobody wants to be that guy. Then why are you doing this? Because there's nobody else to do it right now, that's why. Believe me, if there was somebody else to do it, I would let them do it, but there's not. So we're doing it. That's what makes you that guy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, you're still on... If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Get ready for the downloads. You can hear reviews of Terminator, Predator, The Avengers, Batman, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Launch the downloads. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Baby, come on, baby, come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. This gentleman, as they say, is where the plot thickens. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Come to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You like it, huh? How about you give me 20 bucks for it? But I let you live. Man knows how to bark. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Money. What kind of terrorist are you? <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They're for my wife. Bag it. Big time. Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. I'll be damned if I'm going to clean up this mess! (laughs) Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You're very impressed with yourself, aren't you? I have my moans. Now Playing is not affiliated with 20th Century Fox. The Detective and Die Hard films are the property of 20th Century Fox and no infringement is intended. Listen, uh, you're not pissing in somebody's pool, are you? (laughs) Yeah, and I'm fresh out of chlorine. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. That was unpleasant. Don't happen again. Now Playing is a Venganza Media Production copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Non-compliance will result in a penalty. Happy trails, Hans. I had no idea Chester Arthur was even a president, much less the 21st one. I would have never come up with that name ever. I thought it was Percy Jackson, but (laughs) I have to ask. Today we're discussing Die Hard with a Vengeance. I don't like my inflection on that one. No, that was (laughs) (laughs) She blinded me with science! It'd be more like Die Hard with a Vengeance.
<laughs> not Die Hard with a vengeance or however he did it. <laughs> you got to be tougher. This is an action film. <laughs> I sounded more startled than vengeful. <laughs> You're like, vengeance? <laughs> I've never seen that word before. <laughs> like, just snuck up on you. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Want to tell him how the same guy could have the same thing happen to him three times? Sure, but let me close the door. This is going to be a racy one. He doesn't want Marjorie to hear. Close the door, slam it. There must be a draft in this room, because I did not push it that <laughs> Are you in a vault? <laughs> Are you in the New York Federal Reserve? I closed the blast doors. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And breaking in behind him is, oh, what's the chick's name? Yeah. Katya? Katya? Is that how you say it? Katya? I guess. There's probably some inflection I can't do, but. <laughs> she never Katya. speaks. She never says her yeah. name. <laughs> right. And coming in behind him is. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. 